You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Greg Stokes and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to start off with an article from the Wall Street Journal. Beef is getting cheaper, bringing some economic relief to U.S. consumers. Prices of beef, typically among the costliest grocery store purchases, are following after more than a year of increases as consumer demand softens for some cuts. Supplies are improving due to better staffing at meat plants, and supermarkets are offering more discount on ribeye, New York strip, and other often expensive products. The article goes on to talk about how the prices of ground beef and cheap cuts are up, but retail beef prices on the whole are down about 1% for the period ending August 7th. Today is August 22nd. And then for prices of ribeye and beef loin are down nearly 10% for the four weeks ending August 2nd. Like I said, ground beef is up, but in general, the economy and inflation in certain areas seems to be chilling out, and it's evident in the prices of ground beef. I also saw an interesting piece on chicken wings, which are very popular and in-demand product over the last couple of years since COVID. Chicken wings are now at pre-COVID prices. So lots of interesting developments on the inflation front in the United States, at least. We're going to talk about what's going on internationally, but it seems like prices of regular day-to-day goods have calmed down a little bit. Any comment on that, Doug? Well, I think if you're a bull in this particular market, then you have to be making the bet that inflation's coming down. And we're going to talk about Europe in a second, but this is by Crestmont Research. The reason I say that is because if you look at the average price to earnings ratio of the market right now, I think the last time we checked, it was like 17 times. The market's up since then. So it's probably, you know, eight, let's call it 18 times earnings, although we can actually link the exact PE ratio based upon current price levels the expectation, at least on a forward basis. But Crestmont goes into the inflation trends, consumer price index versus the price earnings ratio during different inflation regimes. And for CPI range or inflation range between 6 and 10%, which is about 7% of all reported periods since 1900, the average price to earnings ratio is 13 times So if you're a believer that inflation has peaked and coming down, so let's say it's going to be somewhere in the the 3 to 5% range, then the average PE during 3 to 5% inflationary periods is 19 times. So the point there is those numbers are encouraging for those who believe that markets are priced efficiently based upon all available information and that if the PE ratio now is 18 times, and inflation next year is going to be somewhere in that 3 to 5% range, then if you're looking at all periods 1900 to 2021, you're sort of in that average range of you know, current S&P 500 valuation compared to the level of earnings associated with it. Then that leads us to, you know, what if that's not correct? What if inflation is persistent? Then you've got you know, a price to earnings ratio that would be much lower, which means prices would have to come down in the market. At least in America, I'm a believer that inflation from a CPI perspective, now some things are more expensive, some things are less expensive, but I believe that inflation has peaked and is coming down, which leads me to believe that 
Now, I mean, anything can happen in markets, but from a fair valuation perspective, if earnings don't go into a recession, which is another thing we can talk about, but based upon current expectations of earnings and current price, if you're looking at history, we're sort of in that average level currently. Now, what's going on in Europe, specifically in England? I know you were talking about this with me before we hit record, but why don't you just explain to everybody? So the big news today is that Citibank forecasts UK inflation will hit 18% in early 2023. A big part of that, a big piece of all the thing that, that are the issues that the UK and Europe are having right now are related to the conflict in the Ukraine and the resulting gas prices because Russia is using that as a lever and trying to influence foreign policy. So it's a wild world out there in the United States, like we just talked about. It looks like things are chilling out. I've noticed this in my day-to-day life as well, too. And the thing I find interesting about that article is that the expensive cuts of beef are going. The prices of those have fallen. The market at work. Right. It's the market at work. Like we talked about this recently, or this is a few, maybe four or five weeks in the past, but there's a lot more demand for off-market beer and cigarettes. And the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about that. The same thing goes for beef. I mean, the, the all of a sudden, these choice cuts are now less in demand and ground beef is more in demand. In the UK and Europe, there's all different types of things going on in the global economy right now. And in the UK and, and Europe, that's specifically related to the Ukrainian conflict. And in China, the news out of China is that they're actually cutting rates and trying to encourage economic activity. Their property sector is blown up in not a good way. Right, exactly. I actually saw a bunch of videos recently where there was demolition going on on half-built condominiums in China because it was cheaper for them to demolish the condominiums than to market them and sell them and everything. So a lot of different activity going on. And at least for right now, like it's been a major discussion point recently is that the United States has seemed to held up better than everywhere else because it's the, the best neighborhood on a volatile block, so to speak. You know, it's been a discussion point since you and I have been in the business is that there's going to be some sort of reversion to the mean between international and U.S. stocks. And to the point that U.S. stocks have done so much better than international stocks coming out of the financial crisis. And if you look back at all prior periods, this was released by J.P. Morgan last week. Before 2008, the longest period of time in which one market, whether it's the domestic market or the other, the international market, this is measured by MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australia, Far East, and MSCI USA. The longest period of outperformance was 7.3 years that the international markets outperformed the US markets from 2001 to 2008. Since 2008, the US has outperformed, that's been 15 years of outperformance or 240% of total outperformance between the U.S. markets versus international. And my question is, is that, I mean, with what you just mentioned, everything going in Ukraine, do you see that reversing at all? I mean, maybe this is one of those things where things are never as bad or as good as they seem, but it's hard to make a big bet on specifically Europe and China right now. Right. It's almost, you can look at that same analogy intra the United States with New Orleans, it's like, it seems, <laughs> right. it seems like at some point things have got to improve here. Things are just, they continually look horrible. And the same thing's going on with Europe right now. Is that ever going to change? I'm a value investor and I tend to believe that typically when you have such negative sentiment, which exists in Europe and has existed for 
a multitude of reasons that that are known. Eventually, there should be some sort of reversion to mean and some sort of bright side to it. And I think the same thing exists in New Orleans. But if and when that happens is really anybody's guess. But I think that you can potentially get a, you know have outsized returns as a result of making those bets. But it seems to me right now, and and this whole situation has really validated the philosophy of being more centric in the United States from a investment standpoint, being having more of your investment allocation domiciled in the United States. And I think that you can at least continue to make that argument, but I think things are a value lens. Yeah. Speaking of sort of the bright side of these sorts of issues that have been plaguing the US and the international community throughout this year, whether it's inflation or conflict, maybe this is something that's more positive. Yuri and Timmer, who's uh, the chief economist at Fidelity, wrote something which I think is interesting. He said, rally at a crossroad. The S&P 500 has retraced 53% of its decline. So let's say it went down 20%. Now it's only down 10%. And this is as far as bear market rallies go. And so let me stop there and say that there's a debate in the community right now as to whether we're on a new bull market after a 20% plus decline this year, or if this is what's considered a bear market rally, meaning it's sort of a head fake that things are looking more positive and then there's a, a major drop off. And depends on your your general outlook and optimism versus pessimism type personality as to whether you believe one is a bull market, one is a bear market that is just rallying back and going to go lower. But he says that this is as far as bear market rallies go, this is the best climb through all prior bear market rallies. So if we look at every single bear market rally since 1929 and look at the best performance during that bear market before it declined even further, 2022 would be the absolute best. If the market continues to climb, technically speaking, there will be no historical basis for concluding that this is not a new cyclical bull market. So basically what he's saying is the odds are based upon the retracement that we've had from the lows, that this is a new continuation of a new bull market. Other people will point to what's happening in Ukraine, the inflation numbers, expectation from England, and uh, just general sentiment around you know, crashing commodity prices, rising interest rates, slowing down economy, that this is not a new bull market. But of course, what they say about bull markets is that it, bull markets climb the wall of worry. And so uh, there's always bad news out there. But I think it's interesting at least to point out that if this is a rally that's you know, part of a bear market, which it very well could be, it would be the best rally in the history of all bear markets. Right. The interesting thing about the markets is, is that they're obviously not a science and unprecedented things happen all the time. Like, for example, this is the worst, like we had talked about it, I think this is through June, was the worst single year in the history of the bond market. So things, unprecedented things happen all the time. But I, I saw that same thing that, that that would be unprecedented for this to be a bear market rally or a dead cat bounce is what they call it in the industry. But it could obviously happen. But if it did, it would be the first time it has happened in history where things bounce back this much and didn't result in a new bull market. But obviously we're talking, and this has been a pretty crummy past couple of days. We're recording on Monday, August 22nd. The markets are down 2%. They were off about one and a half percent on Friday. So things are still very choppy and working themselves out. Nautilus Capital posted something 
on Friday. Basically, people make their careers out of charting the markets in the S&P 500 relative to historical trends and timelines, et cetera. But this individual from Nautilus basically overlaid the S&P 500 with other historical timeframes, historical timeframes that were either indicative of a supremely awesome bull market that's upcoming, like, for example, through August 19th of 2022, the last year or so is 90% correlated with the S&P 500 of 1962. And that resulted in a almost a double basically from here over the next couple of years. And same thing in 2020, it was 2020 and 2015, the S&P 500 is 86% correlated. And then that period was very solid. But then we're also 91% correlated 2022 with 2008, which we all know ended up in a pretty disastrous period. And 85% correlated 1973, which was a really difficult period as well, too. So it really depends upon which way you look at it. And yeah, that sounds like so much BS to me. <laughs> Just because the action in the S&P 500 is similar to 2008 from a correlation perspective, then the outcome would be that way or the other way around that it's like, you know, similar to a 1962 bull market just because the chart looks similar. What did you call it? looks like it's a Rorschach test. Rorschach test. Yeah. Right. It's like what the psychologists use, like when they show you like a bunch of ink on a paper and like, what do you see here? Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's completely meaningless. Look, I think that from a technical analysis perspective, I think there's some use to that because it's just a, a dynamic of supply and demand in markets. But if you're actually trying to overlay something that happened in 1975 with what happened today, what sort of use are you getting out of that other than you're either making people feel better or feel worse about the current situation that we're in? Right. And what's happened lately is that there's one specific investor, Michael Burry, who's famous as a result of the big short. He made several hundred million dollars for his clients and betting against subprime mortgage securities in 2008, 2009, 2010. But he's basically been a bear during this period and referring to these same tables, et cetera. Guy's obviously genius, but when people make one significant right prediction, they just were able to grab headlines more so often. And he's been referring to the negative charts that I just referred to, whereas you could easily make the same argument looking at the positive charts and the market going up, just like I just talked about. So the big thing to really look at and think about from this standpoint is how much time do I have? How much volatility can I get through? Because the statistical likelihood is if you have enough time, even through some of these really difficult periods, like if you looked at the correlation with the S&P 500 to 2008, that of course was a very difficult period. But then if you looked out three or four years from then, your account was significantly higher even through that period than it was in 2008. So it's just a matter of time and your ability to grind through it. And all of these short-term prognostications are interesting and they garner a lot of headlines and get people very nervous. But the big picture is that if you can grind through these periods and if you have enough time, that's really the most important thing, don't you think? The way I think about this is very similar to real estate. And I was talking about this with our dad a couple of months ago, but basically the way I think about real estate, it doesn't really matter over a long period of time at what point you buy a piece of property. But if you buy it in a great area, whether, you know, great location, it has some sort of geographic advantage, maybe it's on the beach or maybe it's in the mountains on a lake or whatever, and near a thriving town or whatever it is, and you hold it long enough, you'll make money. That's how I feel at least about real estate. Now, maybe as experienced as we are in New Orleans, we don't really get the benefit of seeing housing prices increase year over year 
but other people in other places do specifically in California or New York or you know, Boston or whatever. But if you buy a piece of property, you may buy it at the top of the market, but if you hold it long enough, you'll do all right. And that's just a, a theory of quality, just buying quality assets and holding them for a long period of time. Well, if you're looking at public markets, the highest quality public market assets is the S&P 500. It's the largest 500 companies in, in America that are publicly traded. And it's weighted by the best of those companies, weighted by market cap. And so if you buy that, it doesn't matter when you buy it. But if you buy it and you hold it long enough, you'll make money. And that just goes to the discussion on time horizon. Maybe the market should be at 15 times earnings when it's at 19 because of inflation and higher interest rates and you know opportunity costs with being able to do other investments that yield higher than they did a year ago. And so there's that issue of trade-off between maybe bonds and stocks and bonds now earn higher. So you sell stocks and buy bonds. But over time, things normalize. And I think if you own quality assets over a long period of time, you'll make money. Right. Exactly. The way that I look at it is 10, 15, 20 years from now, if history is any guide, prices today are going to look cheap. And whether or not it's six months from now, the market prices are a little bit lower or a little bit higher, it really doesn't matter. The other thing to consider too is like, this goes for your younger cohort. It's certainly a bummer when prices are down, but if you're putting new money to work, it is absolutely a gift from the heavens essentially. And you should be excited to see lower prices because that just means for every dollar you put in, you're getting more shares of a security. I think that analogy though is spot on. And I really do think that if you have, like you're saying, you buy a quality piece of real estate and that analogy certainly applies to the stock market with quality companies. The other thing is diversification matters. You never know which one of those companies are going to be around, but if you have enough of them, most likely, you know, it's going to work out for a big percentage of them. Yeah. I think for people that are more in the retiree age, I think it just means that your your range of expected outcome is probably wider. So it just stresses the importance of diversification, building a large enough safety net in your cash flow plan. As it relates to the current market environment, I'm you know, I'm generally an optimist. And I believe if I have to, you know, put my my money on something, I believe that the American economic system over even a short and long period of time will work out and stocks will follow the economy to higher highs over whatever period of time you want to put. But I also, I'm not a you know, naive to think that there are not a lot of risks out there. And so I think it just is prudent to take those risks into consideration, especially for people that need capital. For those that don't, then especially younger people or young at heart, you know, that have cash flow from other sources and employment, owning a business, whatever, you view this as, look, if things go down, I'm buying more. If things go up, my portfolio value looks higher and I'm feeling good about myself. But just continue the program of massive investment within your portfolio to the point where you're hitting your savings targets and everything else will work itself out over time. Retirees, I think, just say, look, I should increase my margin of safety. Maybe things are not as good as, as uh, I'm hoping for. And I want to make sure that I can make it through a bear market. Right. I think that makes total sense. And like, this is a corny phrase, but it's time in the market versus timing the market. So what happens is people that are sitting on cash, this has been my experience, at least people that are sitting on cash that are waiting for a drop in the market, real estate market or stock market, really have a difficult time pulling the trigger. And you're better off most of the time as a human being, just buying quality and sticking with it a very long period of time. And uh, if history is any guide, that's really the way to be successful long term versus 
these sorts of like predictive outcomes in the short term, which who knows, because you can draw whatever conclusions you want that fit your preconceived notions based upon looking at, you know, whatever chart of the day that is prepared or whatever. Yeah. Or political bias that enters the equation. I think that that's the, in terms of like a poison bomb on a portfolio, depending on who's in office, but allowing uh, political bias to enter the equation and, you know, every two or four years changing your views on markets or the economy based upon who's in office is one of the biggest detriments to long-term wealth accumulation that I've seen. And so I would say that in terms of not having a blind eye to what's going on in the world, I understand that it's uh, a lot of negativity out there. And sometimes there's a lot of positives. I think at the beginning of this year, there was a lot of positives going on. I think inflation was lower. We were talking last year about the roaring 20s <laughs> just because of all of the stimulus that was coming in, that there was a huge pent-up demand from COVID and, and all of a sudden now nobody's buying filet mignon anymore. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I think having these these emotional swings based upon the political news of the day and just general market sentiment is one of the worst things that you can do and enter into your portfolio decision making. Right. So seventeen eighty eight, about fifty percent of the time or every four years, fifty percent of the population was bearish on the <laughs> exactly right. so you just have to recognize that bias exists that you know you're probably not going to feel good about the uh, political landscape every so often but america's really been able to thrive throughout you know the long term and it's probably going to happen because the people that set up this country did it in such a manner that that's what they were trying to get at they like gridlock and that's worked out in terms of a political landscape that isn't able to make we only have now, I don't know, 28 amendments or something like that to the Constitution. If you look at any other, for example, the Mexican Constitution has like hundreds of amendments. So right. we have a status quo has worked out really well in this country, and that's probably going to continue long term if, if history's any guy. Yep. All right. Well, we're coming up on time, and we got a couple more weeks till we have our next guest. So it'll be us for at least the next two sessions. But as always, we appreciate you listening, and please like and share with friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.